Now we're going to be reading from John 21 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the tomb had been taken away from the saw had been taken away from the tomb. The stone had been taken away from the tomb, sorry. <clears throat> so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, <clears throat> and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Do you notice that right when Nancy quoted Jesus, there was thunder outside? You're good. You're good. Well, the September 2013 cover of Time magazine had this title on the front, Can Google Solve Death? Google's CEO at the time had announced a new division of Google called Calico. I don't know if any of you all have heard of it, but it's dedicated to health and aging issues and basically trying to solve the problem of death. And the editors of Time kind of had a heyday with this, saying, why would Google, this high-tech company, spend millions of dollars to deal with life's most absolute certainty, which is death. Well, Christians know that that somebody's already solved that problem. It's been taken care of. Tomb's empty. The real problem today really is not so much solving death. That's taken care of. The real problem is living. Living in the here and now. And really, our passage here from John chapter 20 addresses both taking care of the problem of death, because it's a resurrection account of Jesus, but also of living. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's break that down a bit. I don't know if you've ever heard of Brene Brown. She's a social researcher. She spent six years researching, trying to discern the main causes of emotional distress in American life. Interestingly, toward the end of her research, she herself had an emotional breakdown. And she learned then that the physician could not heal herself. And she found herself really embarrassed by that, ashamed of it. 
And she feared about people knowing about it, but then she realized the significance of being vulnerable about it. And she talked about the power of vulnerability. In fact, that became a TED Talk. How many of y'all have heard of TED Talks or seen one, heard one? They're really cool, and they're a very popular podcast, and you can get them on the internet as well, on YouTube and other things. And so she talked about being vulnerable, and she thought, oh my gosh, I just spoke live to 500 people. If this really gets out to my colleagues and everything, I'm toast. My career is over. And she had lunch with a friend the next day saying, well, I just spoke to 500 people, and maybe, I don't know, because it's on YouTube, we'll get, you know, 500 to 700 hits. But other than that, I think I'll be okay. I don't think it's going to destroy my job or anything. Well, it got over 15 million hits. A lot of people responded to it. A huge impact. Why was there such a response? Because she was dealing with the primary cause of emotional distress. You know what it is? Shame. Shame. And she researched that and revealed that it had to do with the fear of really being disconnected from people because it kind of deals with the question of, if you really knew me, if you discovered who I really was and all of my weaknesses and all of my past failures and sins and fears and the list goes on, you would want to disconnect from me. Maybe just keep me at arm's length or maybe totally shun me. And that's a great fear. That's the basis of so much fear, this fear of being disconnected from other people. And it's that fear of exposure, that fear of discovery that drives this sense of shame which is the greatest stressor in American life. Now, I've got just a snippet of her uh, TED Talk here that I want you to see, just a couple of minutes, but I think it's worth watching. There's a great quote that saved me this past year by Theodore Roosevelt. Um, A lot of people refer to it as the man in the arena quote. And it goes like this. It is not the critic who counts. It is not the man who sits and points out how the doer of deeds could have done things better and how he falls and stumbles, the credit goes to the man in the arena whose face is marred with dust and blood and sweat. But when he's in the arena at best, he wins and at worst he loses. But when he fails, when he loses, he does so daring greatly. And that's what this conference to me is about. That's what life is about, about daring greatly, about being in the arena. When you walk up to that arena and you put your hand on the door and you think, I'm going in and I'm going to try this, shame is the gremlin who says, "Uh uh-uh, you're not good enough. You never finished that MBA. Your wife left you. I know your dad really wasn't in Luxembourg. He was in Sing Sing. I know those things that happened to you growing up. I know you don't think that you're pretty enough or smart enough or talented enough or powerful enough. I know your dad never paid attention even when you made CFO. Shame is that thing. And then if we can quiet it down and walk in and say, I'm going to do this, we look up and the critic that we see pointing and laughing 99% of the time is who? Us. Shame drives two big tapes, never good enough. And if you can talk it out of that one, who do you think you are? The thing to understand about shame is it's not guilt. Shame is a focus on self. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Shame is I am bad. Guilt is I did something bad. How many of you, if you did something that was hurtful to me, would be willing to say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake? How many of you would be willing to say that? 
Guilt. I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Shame. I'm sorry, I am a mistake. There is a huge difference between shame and guilt. So guilt is, I made a mistake. Shame is, I am a mistake. I'm not good enough. Or if you really knew me, you'd really realize that I am a mistake and unworthy. If you really knew me. She goes on to talk about her vulnerability, and it's really wonderful, you know. And she talks about how even after she learned all these things, she had that emotional breakdown. Now, why does she do that? Why does she make herself vulnerable in the midst of that talk? That wasn't a mistake. Because in her research, she discovered that the great antidote to shame is empathy. Bottom line, someone else who can come to you with arms wide open and say, me too, (laughs) me too, been there, done that. I know what you're going through. 15 million people tuned in just to hear Brene Brown say, me too. Now, we don't have to go to the internet to learn about a lot of me too people. Go through all of scripture. It's replete with people who can tell us, yeah, I've been there too. I've been a person of shame. I've been a person of, boy, if you really knew who I was, would you still think I was good enough? And in this account, this is no exception, you have John chapter 20, you have two people, really, who are great Me Too people that we can look to. First is Mary Magdalene. She's a good example of somebody with shame from a distant past. If you need somebody to say, if you've ever had shame in your distant past, she could comfort you by saying, Me Too. I've dealt with that. Let's go to verse 1. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, it talks about how Mary Magdalene had been healed of seven demons, that Jesus drove out seven demons. Do we understand the nature of that, exactly what they were? No, we don't. But obviously, evil had a grip on her mind and her heart and her body. Most scholars suggest either that she had very ill will, had a a real hateful demeanor, or had a very immoral life, or perhaps both. You go to the Gospel of Luke, and he recounts not just the demons issue, but the fact that Mary was included among a host of women who lived with and worked with Jesus and the disciples who were filled with, it says, infirmities and sickness. She was one of those. And you got to remember back in Jesus' day, what was the Jewish understanding of suffering? If you were dealing with sickness or infirmity of some kind, what did that mean? It meant that you had sinned and you are cursed. And you wanted to disconnect with those people, maybe even shun them completely, treat them like a leper. Well, Mary is one of those people, according to Luke, because of her past. But then Jesus comes along and receives her, accepts her, gives her life incredible meaning. But what's interesting is not everybody connected with her. Not everybody respected her like they should. Go to verse 18. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them his message, which is a wonderful message, which we'll get to later. But she uh, shared that message with them. So she delivers the best of news, the best news in all of history. And instead of being excited and hopeful and encouraged by it, what do the disciples do? They go lock the doors and hide. Go to verse 19. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. They took nothing into account what she had said. They totally disregarded her and her witness. Totally disregarded. It was just Mary, you know. We need not take it seriously because, after all, it was Mary who delivered that to us, and we all know about her. Think about it, by the way, how difficult it must have been for Mary to have 
lost Jesus, to have seen him die, to be separated from this one who gave her so much acceptance and significance and meaning to life. Think about it. She was the last one who cared enough to stay with him to the cross. Do you remember? She was there at the cross with John, with Mary, the mother of Jesus, when Jesus looks at John and says, take care of my mother. They go and they take the body of Jesus and they place it in the tomb and roll the stone across. Only Mary Magdalene is there. Only Mary Magdalene lasts. She's still there. And you have this strong sense of her clinging to Jesus, just thinking, what do I do now? I've got to be with him. He's the one who received me, who cared for me. I have to be with him. And interestingly, she's the first one to go to the tomb the next morning. And then it gets really cool. Wonderful things start to happen. First of all, he speaks to her. Let's go to verses 14 and 15. She turned to leave from the tomb and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Which, by the way, why didn't she recognize him? Just on a side note. Well, first of all, he's in his glorified body, which is like his earthly body, but kind of different is the best way I can put it. Secondly, it's early in the morning. It's like twilight. She probably can't see very well. But really, the main thing is this. What is the first thing Jesus says? Dear woman, why are you crying? The word there in the Koine Greek really means wailing. It's usually translated weeping or crying, but the word is wailing. She's out of control with grief and with panic. What have they done to my Lord? Where is he? So she's just out of control, and so he speaks to her and calms her down. Dear woman, why are you crying? And he says, who are you looking for? She thought it was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you've taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go to get him. So it's cool. He speaks to her, and I think that's so cool. Jesus rises from the dead, and the first person he speaks to is one whom nobody else will listen to. I find that wonderful. I find that marvelous. He speaks to Mary, calls her by name. Go to the next verse. Mary, Jesus says, and she recognizes his voice there. I think that's so cool, again, in this most conclusive event in all of human history, the first one named and the first one whom he calls out to, the first one addressed is Mary, the woman with the demons, the woman with the past, the woman with the reputation, the woman with the immorality, with the infirmity, and he speaks to her first, the one who nobody else would listen to. It's more wonderful she's the first to declare who he is. Go to the latter part of 16. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. It's part Aramaic, part Hebrew. And again, it means teacher, but it's important to keep in mind that in Jewish literature, rabbi or Rabboni was used more than any other word in Jewish literature and Jewish prayers to refer to God. Whenever they prayed prayers, they would say Rabboni or rabbi more than anything else. So Mary's not the only one who is first spoken to. She's the first one to declare him as Lord. Even before Thomas, who who sees the wounds and and the wound in his side, and he says, my Lord and my God, long before that, Mary Magdalene has the privilege and the gift of doing that. So the first person to praise the Lord from whom, you know, he had uh, cast out demons and cared for her, this woman of reputation, of infirmity. She's the first one to see him, the first to hear him, the first to touch him, the first to praise him. What a gift for her. Mary, who struggled with this shameful past until she met Jesus. So if your problem is shame from something way back in the past, is there something back in your past that you're really ashamed of, still kind of working through? Mary is there to say, yeah, me too. But what if it's more of a present shame? Let me ask you, and if you were gut-level honest with me, what if I were to say, you know, is there something that you said or did or thought or imagined within the last week that you really regret? 
And if other people knew about it, they might be a little bit taken aback, at least you think they would be, and they might at the very best keep you at arm's length, maybe at the worst just shun you completely, if they really knew that about you. Is there somebody in the story who that could apply to? You know, something very recent. Well, it's very recent in the narrative when you look at Peter and what Peter has done. In this sense, if it's something recent that you've done or said, Peter's there to say to you, me too. Peter has his own demons, doesn't he? And it's not in the form of of seven demons. It's in the form of what? Three denials. Three denials. Now, let me go back to Brene Brown for just a moment. She talked about how shame has some gender-specific uh, issues to it. She talked about for women, the primary problem of shame is that they can't do everything. They feel shame because they can't balance all the priorities of being a mother and a wife and a lover and a soccer mom and a caregiver and a parent. But in her six-year research for men, there was just one issue, one primary issue, the one thing that men do that brings them the most shame. What is the one thing men don't want to show more than anything else? Weakness. Weakness. Does Peter show weakness here? Weren't you with Jesus that night? Hey, wasn't that you? You were with him. Oh, no, not me. Yeah, I saw you with him. You were with him, were you not? No, not me. Wait, you're a Galilean too. You were with him, were you not? I do not know the man. And the cock crows after that third denial, and he weeps bitterly. What do you think he is feeling more than anything after that moment of weakness? I would say shame. And his failure isn't over either. Later on, he goes to the upper room. You go to verse 9 of chapter 20. He's seen the empty tomb, and what does he do? Is he empowered by that? No, he goes home and hides in fear and in shame. Ultimately, though, the news gets great. Do you remember later on when Jesus meets with Peter and doesn't just reconnect with him, doesn't just reconcile, but he really restores Peter? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, feed my sheep. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Okay, go feed my sheep. Simon, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Okay, go feed my sheep. I love this. This is an orthodox icon of Jesus on the left restoring Peter. Uh, Down at the bottom is the Greek saying, uh, feed my sheep. And there's also the earlier depiction of, of Peter floundering in the water when he thought he could walk on water like Jesus did. Another kind of form of failure and shame. But it's Jesus restoring him. And what I love is he says, I've got work for you to do. He doesn't just say, I forgive you. He says, okay, stop clinging to that shame, Peter, and feed my sheep. Stop clinging. That's exactly what he tells Mary Magdalene. Go to verse 17. That's exactly what he says. Don't cling to me, Jesus said. I know that some translations say don't touch me. Uh, Not a good translation. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. He gives her something to do, but go find my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Don't cling to me. When we cling to the past, it, it, it disempowers our witness. It really keeps us from fulfilling our calling. We need not cling to those things of the past that Jesus really wants us to let go of. Things, yes, that cause you shame or have, but he wants you to get rid of those. Why will he want you to reconnect? Just as he says, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. That's the great reconnection that Jesus offers to every one of us. That's the great accomplishment. He rose, and when he rose, when he ascended, he's basically saying, I'm ascending to reconnect with my Father 
and your father. In other words, now you have the opportunity to reconnect with him as well. In a, in a sense, you've been disconnected with him since the fall, <laughs> since your own personal sin. Now you can reconnect with him, and he is going to be my God and your God. In spite of our shame and our weaknesses and our failures and our fears, he offers us the freest of invitations that sets us most ultimately free. And it can really set you and me free when we can stop clinging to that shame and move ahead, especially on Easter morning. No other time that Jesus would want you to do that more. Last Monday, I was reading the New York Times, and I saw this headline. Finally free from guilt over challenger disaster, an engineer dies in peace. It's this gentleman here that you see. The article began with a quote from this man, why me? And it said, this is what Bob Abling planned to, to demand of God when he saw him. Bob was going to say, why me, God? You picked a loser. Now, Bob Abling was a former rocket engineer for the NASA a contractor, Morton Thiokol. This was 30 years ago. And for 30 years, he was swamped by the grief of failing on this catastrophe known as the Challenger shuttle disaster. Days before the space shuttle Challenger blew up, he and four other engineers told NASA, do not launch on this date. You've got to delay this. The O-rings are not sealing like they should. We think disaster is going to occur. They warned NASA, but they were overruled. And as many of you saw on television or have seen on video, January 28, 1986, the shuttle exploded around 73 seconds after taking off. And the shame that Bob felt was bad enough, but when he went back to Morton Thiokol, he and the four other engineers were basically shunned by their colleagues. They were worried about their jobs. They didn't want to take on any of the blame. And so they became known as the five lepers. I'm not making this up. That's in the article. They became known as the lepers, and people avoided them. They were isolated at meetings. They were, they were excluded from technical discussions. Their reports were routinely ignored. And eventually Bob Abling retired, he said, and I quote, I just didn't feel needed anymore. Last year, NPR interviewed him, and he was quoted as saying this, I think that was one of the mistakes that God made. He shouldn't have picked me for that job. I'm a loser. I'm unworthy. Think about this, 30 years carrying that sense of shame. Shame dealing with the question, who are you, as Brene said earlier. And he thinks he's a loser, he's unworthy. Hundreds and hundreds of people responded to that interview, trying to find out how they could send a letter to this man, email this man saying, you did the right thing, you are so worthy. And after word got up to the hierarchy in uh, NASA and Morton Thiokol, they responded. And the head of NASA actually called him and said, Bob, God didn't pick a loser, he picked Bob Abling. You did the right thing. And Bob was relieved, and that was just not long ago. And he just died this past Monday in Brigham City, Utah, at age 89. And the family said thanks to, to these assurances from others, he died, un, I'm quoting it, unburdened by the question that haunted him for three decades. How sad that that haunted him, though. How sad to carry that around for so long. And the final quote is from his daughter. She said, he was able to let that part of his life go. He doesn't have to die with this nagging guilt. He can die free. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Well, the great thing is you and I get to embrace this even greater 
incredibly ridiculous miracle. You know, those of us who could say, if you really knew me, my flaws, my mistakes, my sins, my weaknesses, my fears, and the list goes on and on. If you really knew me, you might not want to be around me, and yet Jesus, who rose from the dead, says, I'm not going to treat you like a leper. In fact, I am bringing you into my fold. You are one of my sheep. You are one of my brothers. You are one of my sisters. Because of Christ, we can be made whole, not just at death, which is great. That problem is solved. But I hope and pray that maybe today you could let that happen here in life. If you've been carrying anything around that you've been clinging to that you really need to let go of in order to really live the life that Jesus desires of you and to fulfill that calling that he has for you because you're not done yet. I hope and pray that you can let that go and enjoy the life that the risen Christ offers you right now. Let's pray together. Greatest of miracles, O oh God, empty tomb, wonder of wonders, greatest of gifts. Help us to embrace that, savor it for all that it is. In one sense, we are indeed unworthy of that gift, but because of the gift you've been given, that you have given to us, O oh God, you nevertheless see our lives as significant and meaningful. And so, should any of us be clinging to matters, issues, sins, compulsions, whatever they might, they might be that we need to let go of, help us to do that beginning now. Help us to truly make this an Easter, Easter day by giving ourselves fully in celebration and doxology to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.